Again, without further ado, our guest for this fourth episode of More Than Turf presented by FMC is Henry DeLosier. You know him as the game plan columnist in Golf Course Industry Magazine. Great, informative, practical, useful columns every month. He is also a big part of GGA Partners, a huge figure in the golf industry. Henry, welcome to More Than Turf. How are you doing? Thank you, Matt. I'm doing wonderfully well. I hope everybody else is at the same time. I gave maybe the 10-second intro on who you are, but there's obviously a lot more than that. Before we get into any leadership talk, people should listen to you anyway, but if you want to give them 30 or 60 seconds on your credentials and maybe why you have some uh, certain sway in the industry. Gosh, I'll be darned if I know why I do. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I'm, I participate in these uh, programs that you invite me to, to do because I believe in golf course superintendents. The first job I ever had at a golf course was grubbing out sand traps when I was 11 years old. And uh, it taught me right away to appreciate the hard work that goes into creating an enjoyable golf experience. I'm so thankful for that. It also has paved the way for me to understand the critical nature of hard work. And I, I believe that comes through in, in my viewpoints regarding leadership. When you think about leadership at a, at a golf course maintenance level, leadership is in everything that happens with the crew on the golf course. And the capabilities and the attitude of the crew is reflective of the quality of leadership. So to me, that's, a, that's an important characteristic. What makes me a person that is worthy of this interview, I suppose I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different clients. Our firm serves over 3,000 clients around the world. Um, I've had the chance to actually have a hand in developing more than four more than four dozen golf courses within residential communities. So I've, I've got a lot of hands-on experience and Lord only knows I've made more than my fair share of mistakes. I feel like that's maybe, if not the biggest, it's certainly on the, the high part of the list there in terms of what makes a great leader is knowing when you've made a mistake, moving past it, but not moving past it without acknowledging it and incorporating it into everything else that you do moving forward. I'm always motivated by the quote attributed to Winston Churchill, which is that success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to keep continuing on that is the key. And, and that's always motivated me. And like I say, I've made plenty of mistakes, none of which have been fatal. And they've always given me the opportunity to pursue that success that we all work so hard. I would not be surprised to find that quote on a board in some golf maintenance facilities somewhere. Success is not final. And is it failure is not fatal? Failure is not fatal. Love that. Uh, the fact of the matter, those come in equal measures, it seems. And if, if it's not on uh, folks' whiteboard or work board in the club, that might be a good one for everybody to keep in mind. Now, before we dive into a lot of what makes good leadership in superintendents. I'm just curious because we've talked fairly regularly over the last few years. I don't know that I knew you started in the industry raking bunkers, which fairly common introductory task, but you were 11. How did that happen? I was. My folks were of modest means, you know, 
nowadays we would call them poor. And uh, with six children, uh, the idea that one of them wanted to go to the golf course and play golf was just out of the question. So I was fortunate that a PGA professional in my little tiny town in Oklahoma uh, made a bargain with me, which was if I would uh, work on the golf course and clean out the restrooms, I could have the privilege of playing golf on the golf course. And of course, I jumped on that bargain like a duck on a June bug. And it was one of the most wonderful experiences that I ever had because it opened a door to me to a world I might not otherwise have been able to get access to. And of course, you probably would not mention this yourself, but you accomplished it. Uh, an all-American golfer during your years at Oklahoma State University, more than once, I think, too, right? Just once, and okay. I'm, sure, I'm sure proud of having had the chance to, to be an Oklahoma State University golfer, uh, part of a, a long orange line, uh, of which I'm a, a happy part. So you have worked with all sorts of leaders, even before becoming a leader yourself. Your first job when you were 11, the superintendent you worked under, the golf pros that you worked under, were leaders. When you go to high school and college golf, obviously your captains and your coaches were leaders. What were some of the early leadership lessons that you learned from those folks when you were in your, I would say teens and twenties, but <laughs> before your teens and then your teens and twenties? I'd, I'd say the most important lesson that I learned, of course, was the power of hard work. I certainly learned that from my parents. And, and at the same time, in watching sound leaders, admirable leaders that I grew up around, they always did the same work that the men and women next to them did. There was none of this business of, I'm the superintendent, I'm above getting my shoes dirty. Everyone had a shovel in their hand or a hoe in their hand or was tending to the responsibilities of completing the tasks that had to be completed. And learning that lesson that, that you've got to shoulder the load with everyone else, I believe, is a key leadership responsibility. I fully understand chain of command. I highly respect organizational disciplines that remind each of us we have a job to do and we need to stay in our in our box and do it. But leadership is, is a key. And as I mentioned earlier in my books, attitude reflects leadership. So when you're, if you've got a grumpy crew, if you've got people who are not wanting to do things, I believe one has to go and look in the mirror because that's that's coming back to you as it relates to the example you're setting. And I'm sure there are a few turf pros out there who it just, it's not that they don't want to do the dirty work. Maybe it doesn't fit in, or maybe they don't need to, they've got enough people, but in your experience in, in decades and decades in this game, how many great leaders have you seen who don't, as you said, you know, have a shovel in their hands, who don't get their boots dirty, at least occasionally. I've kind of been lucky that I've worked around leaders who are highly are highly effective and who are hardworking people. Uh, in my career, gosh, of these years I've done this, I've probably worked with five or six people who just didn't lead when they were charged with that responsibility. Uh, quite to the contrary, I have had the chance to work with people who stepped up, who knew that others were counting on them. And so I've had a tremendous example and a lot of role models in servant leadership. And it's that servant leadership that motivates me. Now, I sent along a few questions ahead of time, just to just to get your, your thoughts kind of going and, and you're not walking into any of this blind. So that first one, and it, we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but regardless of age, Henry, uh, regardless of experience, regardless of responsibility, it could be the 35-year superintendent, it could be the 
I don't know if we let 11 year olds rake bunkers these days, but let's say 14 or 16 year olds who are raking bunkers. I don't let you do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what should all superintendents and, and really any turf pro be doing to learn more about the business and to learn more about leadership, would you say? Sure. Um, I, most of the people I come in contact with, most of the people who have achieved the level of being in the, go- the golf course superintendent, they understand their business. I, oftentimes when I'm participating in GCSAA programs, a, a statement I'll make is your agronomic knowledge is table stakes. That's what got you in the game. It's to a certain extent, I'm sorry to tell you, it's taken for granted. You're supposed to be the agronomic expert. And so not many people question that level of expertise. It is instead uh, the soft skills, the ones that you asked me to talk about today that trip people up. And um, in thinking about where where do I go? What's the, the touchstone that I'd suggest for everyone to go back to is um, that terrific speech that was given by Admiral William McRaven at the uh, graduation ceremonies at the University of Texas, his alma mater. It's a 22 minute video. You can Google it, it's on uh, YouTube. And it's one of the most inspiring talks I've ever heard with a, a man who certainly knows a lot about leadership. It was Admiral McRaven who was in charge of the Joint Special Operations Command that ended up finding and, and pursuing uh, Osama bin Laden. Oh. It, was, it was Admiral McRaven's voice that was being piped into the Situation Room at the White House uh, when the Navy SEALs found bin Laden. And it was uh, Admiral McRaven who was commanding the SEALs in the recovery of Captain Phillips. Uh, many of us have seen that terrific movie when someone had to have that steely-eyed resolve to give the fire command, you know, when, when it had to be done in order to protect uh, Captain Phillips. So uh, a, a person who's been at the tip of the spear, who understands what leadership is, who has had a career in observing other leaders, and he calls out in his talk, uh, what are the attributes that help you to be an effective leader? Uh, Admiral McRaven condensed that talk into a, just a simple little airplane book, maybe 40, 50, 60 pages, which is called Make Your Bed, which was the first of the attributes of great leaders that he called out, lessons he had learned as a Navy SEAL. Wake up every day, make the bed. Be sure you've started taking care of the little details because the, if you can handle the little details, then the big ones will fall right in line. So that would be a starting point that I encourage everyone to uh, to look at. It certainly is inspiring. And I'll also tell you, there's not a single darn thing that Admiral McRaven advises that everyone doesn't already know. We've heard those things. We've been taught those things by parents or friends or family uh, or bosses. Uh, as it relates to leadership. And at the same time, being reminded is the power in that talk. A different book, totally different than Admiral McRaven's teachings on leadership. Um, I encourage golf course superintendents to look at a book that's now getting kind of aged. It was written by an expert in internet marketing by the name of Seth Godin. Mm. And and the book is called The Purple Cow. I've read that book. (laughs) It's (laughs) And it's, it's a book that's entirely about market differentiation. And the, the story behind the story is that 
Godin was uh, in France with his family on a family vacation and his children, city people, uh, were riding the, riding the train through the French countryside. And after field after field, they kept seeing brown and white cows. And the city kids thought that was just about the coolest thing they'd ever seen. But then after a number of miles of seeing fields full of cows, one of them remarked that at first that was really cool. Now I would only really notice if there were a purple cow out there. <laughs> and of course the point is, is your golf course just one of those brown and white cows that everybody drives by without even noticing? Or are you the purple cow that everyone notices? And, and I encourage golf course superintendents to think about what can I and my crew be doing that cause our course, that cause our golf experience to stand out in a way that everyone notices in a very affirmative manner. So those are two examples that I'd cite right off the bat that I certainly encourage others to tap into. We will talk a little bit more about books, magazines, periodicals later in the conversation, but in case folks are driving, if they're operating machinery, they can't take notes. Uh, we'll, we'll mention these again, but Admiral McRaven's, first off his speech, uh, but that speech was condensed into a, a quick little read. And that title again was what, Henry? Make Your Bed. Make Your Bed. And then Seth Godin's The Purple Cow. And Seth Godin's written a handful of really top-notch business books. Yeah. Yes, he certainly has. He's one of the leading thinkers uh, as it relates to brand and brand management. Which... I think any any club, whether you're a nine hole mom and pop or you're a five, six, seven course facility, anybody in this industry could benefit from learning a little bit more about branding, implementing a little bit more about branding. And that goes hand in hand, really, with leadership, I would think. Yes, to be sure. If you think about leadership, you're, what you're looking for is finding ways that your team understands its purpose. You know, we're in such desperate times for access to labor, being able to recruit and retain workers on whom you can rely. And in every study we see from the human resource experts, what you see consistently is what's the number one thing that causes most people to want to work on your crew at your golf facility? It's purpose. It's the notion that what we do matters. I can get a job pumping gas. I can get a job at McDonald's. I can get a job working at your golf course. I want to know that what I do matters. And I, I draw the correlation to uh, free agents wanting to sign a new contract. You don't see many free agents looking to sign a big fat contract with the worst team in the league. Everyone wants to play for the winners. Everyone wants to be a part of a winning team. And so if I'm a golf course superintendent, I get to the point where I can clearly articulate what our purpose is, why we're out there, why we're working those long hours, unfavorable conditions. Why do we do this? Because what we do matters. You've, you've heard me before, Matt, talk about something that's another wellspring for me, and that is the, the, you know, the famous decision that was attributed to John Kennedy back clear back in the 1960s. We're going to put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth in this decade. And of course, the, the follow-up story of that to that, which is perhaps apocryphal in its nature, is uh, Kennedy was at the Space Center, came around a corner, and there's a janitor mopping the floor. Mm -hmm. Somewhat 
oblivious to the president of the United States walking past him. And Kennedy was amused and asked the janitor his name. And um, the, the janitor responded. And he said, what, what's your job here? And the janitor said, well, Mr. Kennedy, I'm part of the team that's going to put a man on the moon. And of course, for me, it's always, man, don't you wish that guy worked for you? Don't you wish everyone on your crew had, could as clearly articulate what they were doing? As opposed to most of us would answer that question and say, well, I'm mopping the floor. And this guy understood he had a bigger purpose than simply mopping the floor. He was part of a team that was going to do something special. And I encourage the listeners to this program to be thinking in terms of how can you communicate to your team, to the individuals that work with you, that we're doing something special. We're not just going through the motions. Real quick aside, because you did bring up the decade-long quest to put a man on the moon. There are, for some reason, all these theories about the moon landing being fake. And this is neither here nor there on leadership. Or maybe it does tie in. I don't know. If the moon landing was fake, wouldn't we have in 50 plus years had one person out of the 100,000 people who worked on that project come out and said, oh, hey, by the way, this wasn't real. You only need one person to come out. That's all the, that's all the, the proof that I needed that it was real. Fun theories, Stanley Kubrick, all that. But nobody came out in 50 plus years and said, hey, by the way, anyway, neither here yeah. nor there. Well, you're, you've certainly gotten beyond my intellectual pay grade on that one. So I'll leave that one with you. <laughs> I think I read that a couple of years ago when uh, they were approaching the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing. Well, and, it, and it's a pretty common sense question. So yeah. good for you. Well, the story, apocryphal or not, about the janitor talking with JFK too, it, it really does show that effective leaders can get folks to run through a wall no matter what their job is, you know, you're, you're wiping the floor, you're cleaning the toilets, you have a role, what you do matters. You know, not everybody is helping put anybody on the moon. Uh, we haven't gone up to the moon, I don't think since 1972, but there are certainly projects that matter. What are some other ways that you found either yourself or folks you've worked with, Henry, that really are effective in just, as I say, getting folks to run through the wall, so to speak, and just buy all in really? First one that occurs to me is one that I experienced playing for the legendary golf coach at Oklahoma State University, Labron Harris, mm -hmm. who was just tough as old boot leather. There was nothing touchy-feely about him. He didn't much care if you liked what he had to say because he was going to say it. And what, what he was able to instill in all of us is that your, your responsibility is to go out and represent the university in the highest and best form that you possibly can. And, and, and to that extent, he, would, he set such a high bar that anything less was not tolerable. And by the way, his bar was not, we have to win every time. We have to, you know, you have to be the best every time. His bar was, if you had a bad day and you shot 75, his response to that was, that beats the heck out of all the 76s that got posted today. If you, shot, if you shot 71, his answer was, well, that beats the heck out of all the 72 shot today. And the key was he was intolerant and he made all of us intolerant of anyone who gave up. If you shot 79, that meant you were fighting as hard as you could to not let that course, I'm sorry, that score slip over 80. 
And he put a lot of stock in that and taught all of us that. Um, the second thing, again, attributable to Mr. Harris, and by the way, he was never laboring with us. He was always Mr. Harris or coach. Um, but the, the second thing I would observe that, that I think is, is an important lesson to share that I learned from a, a fine leader, and that was the notion that adversity is your friend, that there's supposed to be adversity. This is not supposed to be easy. And he, his way of doing that, and of course, mind you, nowadays, Ricky Fowler, Victor Hovland, the many, many great Oklahoma State golfers uh, that come in with fantastic credentials. Those of us who played on the golf team back in my day lacked any of those kinds of credentials, any of that kind of international experience and success. We were just a bunch of homeboys. And therefore, he taught us the worse the conditions, the greater the adversity, the higher we have of a probability of success. So he had us convinced that when we would wake up and it was 45 degrees and there was sleet in the air, that was our day. Because he knew and he had convinced us that we knew that we're going to hang tough. Other people's hands are going to get cold. Other people are going to make a double bogey and get frustrated. And we're, our hands are going to get cold and we're going to keep battling. And if we make a double bogey, then we're going to have to fight twice as hard to recover those strokes. But we're not going to give up. So adversity becomes a wonderful teacher. And adversity for a golf course superintendent just goes with the territory. Right? I haven't met a golf course superintendent yet that didn't know how to reckon with adversity because you have to deal with it so often. And then I'd say the third lesson that I learned from quite a different person, uh, Christine Cade, who's the CEO at Audubon International, where I have the privilege of serving on, on her board, is one of those people who has really helped me to be alert to the good health of Mother Earth and the, the importance that we have in terms of being sure that others understand that. I often say, if the rest of the world is as environmentally dedicated and as effective in stewardship as golf course superintendents, we would live in a better world. So the fact of the matter is these golf course superintendents that are such wonderful environmentalists set a great example for everyone. And I sure applaud them for that and encourage them to continue doing so. You talk about environmental knowledge and working with the environment. And I'm, I'm curious, one of the things, and it ties into the statement, I've covered this industry now for not a long time, but three years, and I've met very few jerks. I'm sure there are some jerks in the industry, but if there are, I just, I don't know who they are because I, I haven't talked with them. I feel like a lot of that ties into the nature of the job. You're working outside, no matter what you do today, you're going to have to do it tomorrow or next week. You're certainly going to have to do it next month or next year because nature is going to replenish and refresh and will always humble you. Is, is there something that you found in your decades in the game, Henry, that maybe nature and the humbling effects of nature, like you said, with adversity, practicing in 45 degree weather, practicing in sleep, your hands get cold. Is there something in nature that maybe the more you let nature humble you, the more leadership capabilities come out? Or am I reading too much into this? I don't think you are. You know, I, I, I've not met many arrogant leaders, especially the ones that are effective. There's all a level of humility because everyone knows what a fine line you walk when you're achieving at a high level. And certainly golf course superintendents, no different than farmers, live right mm -hmm. on that fine line, have to deal with the disappointments that sometimes come 
through no fault of your own, through no efforts of your own. It simply was the hand you were dealt. And then you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with that. I think that's a, that's a real key in golf course superintendents get that. There's another factor that I believe that makes golf course superintendents such remarkable people. And that is that there's this recognition, you know, the, the saying I've heard that if you're going to pray for rain, you better be prepared for the mud. You know, and the, and the fact of the matter is golf course superintendents get that. Yeah, that, we, we need this. We need that. I wish this would happen. I wish that would happen. They're trained professionals to understand, okay, if we're going to get all that rain, I'm going to have to deal with some other issues. And, and there's never a singular event that happens independent or separate from many other things. And I think the fact that golf course superintendents, because of their training in the sciences and their understanding just of how it goes, they're prepared to deal with the, the ripple effects of whatever the circumstances are that face them. And I think that that's also reflected in the quality of leadership you see in this profession. I do want to talk about business and learning the business and what turf pros can do to make themselves invaluable to their club. Before we dive into that, Henry, I mean, we could talk about leadership for hours and hours and hours, but is there anything else that you really want to impart to anybody listening to this, whether they're a superintendent or the 16-year-old on the crew in their first summer about just developing leadership traits and, and becoming a better leader, a more effective leader? I suppose the bridge from leadership to talking some about the business is found in the concept that I mentioned earlier. If you don't understand servant leadership, mm -hmm. it, it, it's only because you haven't heard that term used as it relates to a golf course superintendent, but you are a servant leader. You're putting the needs of others ahead of your own. And, and, and I have tremendous respect for that. There's a great deal of reading material available. Uh, John Greenleaf was the first person clear back in the 1970s that introduced the idea of servant leadership, but servant leadership goes back through the Bible into antiquity. There are examples of wonderful servant leadership, and that's certainly what golf course superintendents do. And, and that kind of takes you from leadership into the business of uh, agronomics and, and how uh, one cares for golf facilities in a successful way. So much of this series already, and this is the fourth episode in More Than Turf, have focused on things that you learn when you're not handling agronomics, uh, talking about communications with Matthew Wharton, talking about developing talent and developing leaders with Matt Schaefer, talking about budgeting with PJ Salter. But how do folks, and maybe this is a question that appeals and applies more to younger folks who are in their first few years in the industry, or maybe it's folks who've been in 20 years and, and have forgotten a few things, I don't know. But what do, what do turf pros need to do to get more of a handle on the business side, whether it is budgeting, whether it's club politics, whether it's just anything that goes on in the clubhouse rather than the maintenance facility? I thought of several examples that I'll try to toss out. The first one that I encourage uh, golf course superintendents, uh, facility administrators to be alert to is understanding the business of your golf facility and understanding, for example, understanding what the gross revenue of your golf course is, is really important because the gross revenue of some of these courses that we see on television may be several times 
what the revenue is at your facility. And if one looks at a golf course as a business entity, it can afford a certain proportion of its expenses to go towards golf course care and upkeep. You need to understand that. You need to understand the proportionality of the business, and you need to develop a, a batch of comparables or a profile of comparable facilities that have similar revenue lines as your facility so that you can start to develop percentages that you can use and measure the proportionality of your work compared to the good work being done at other facilities. So that's a first step is understanding the economics of your of your club. It, you know, it would all, it's all well and good to say, well, we want our course to look like Augusta National on, su- on Sunday afternoon. Lord only knows who doesn't. And at the same time, your facility probably doesn't have the top line revenue that Augusta National has, or it may not have, it may not even be a private club where it has a steady inflow of dues revenue. You need to understand that. And that becomes a real key for you. It also helps to inform a golf course superintendent, for example, at a daily fee course, like the one where I grew up, that says, if I'm the golf course superintendent, I need to make as many tee times available at the most desirable times of day or days of the week that I could possibly do so. And I think that becomes a real important thing for people to understand because the more revenue the course is generating, the more of your share of that becomes and you you have more money to spend in driving forward your facility. A second thing that, that I thought about in anticipation of this discussion is You've already covered communications in this series. Uh, I, I often joke that there must be a, a secret class that, that you go to in turf school or at, to become a golf course superintendent where the overriding message is don't talk to anybody or tell anyone anything unless you have to. And uh, that, in my experience, has been a surefire formula to difficulties for a golf course superintendent. The golf course superintendents do, who do the best have a very obvious, very transparent method of how they're going about their business. They're ready to share it, although they're not beating the drum and showing off. But if someone says, how do we know how much fertilizer we're going to need? That golf course superintendent can say, here, let me show you my takeoff on my fertility plan. And it's very detailed. It's very thorough, just like golf course superintendents do. And I think that's real important. You need to demonstrate that you have complete command of the matters for which you are responsible, and you can articulate those in terms of talking about it, as well as putting it in writing and showing people what you should expect. So I've certainly written in in the magazine about the importance of having an agronomic plan. And that's one of the key places where superintendents get a chance to show that they really know their stuff. And that, of course, is the backbone of your budget, which is eventually the thing you need to be approved by your board or your grains committee or your owner so that you can get access to as much in the way of funds as you can get. I haven't seen very many golf course superintendents that just got too much money to spend and they couldn't figure out what to do with it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're always having to fight for every nickel and dime you can get in order to do the job the way that you want to do it. So in terms of understanding the economics, critical factor. A third factor that that I encourage golf course superintendents to refresh if they're not good at it already, become good at it, and that is administrative skills. Too many superintendents spend too much time sitting at their desk accomplishing nothing. 
And you want to be sure that your administrative skills are efficient to the point that you can go through all of your invoices, get them coded, get them approved, and get them off your desk. And of course, nowadays, where we're going to paperless inventory, I'm sorry, invoicing and so forth, you want to process that as quickly as you can and get it into the accounting department. And by the way, while we're at it and we're talking about the accounting department, see to it that the the department chair uh, for for your accounting department or the controller of your club is your friend. <laughs> See that they know as much as you can possibly provide them, get them as much detail as they want, answer every question that they may pose, however silly it may be. See that the accountant at your facility and the accounting department look on you as a real professional somebody who can be counted on to perform timely, to do all of the things that need to be done so that you can, as much as possible, earn their support. Because the fact of the matter is, when the golf course superintendent goes in asking for something more, all heads turn first to the accounting department, to the controller. And if that person is sitting there shaking their head up and down, like, yes, this is good, this is important, you're halfway home. And if the accountant or the controller is sitting there shaking his or her head in the negative, you're dead. You're not going to get that money. You, you might as well just go on back to work. And so from that standpoint, developing a trusted and trustworthy relationship with the accounting department, critical factor when it comes to understanding your administrative skills. For any of you superintendents that are out there where your accountant or the controller would say, well, we're all ready to close this month's financials. We're just waiting on those invoices from the superintendent. Put a stop to that. Stop being the person who's the impediment to the accountant being able to do his or her job well. That becomes a real vital factor for you in terms of the internal politics of your facility, as well as your effectiveness as, as a leader. And then I suppose the fourth key is set high goals. You know, any of you who have read any of the great works from Jim Collins, uh, Good to Great, Built to Last, he, he's constantly pushing forward the idea of a BHAG, B-H-A-G, Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. Don't settle for little minimal accomplishments. Go big. Well, you know, as they say back home, if you can't run with the big dog, stay under the porch. You know, you've got you've to be sure that you can articulate, this is the kind of golf course we want to have. If you give me the resources to do my job, these are the kinds of outcomes you can expect from me. And again, back to John Kennedy, we're going to put a man on the moon. At the time, that was quite an undertaking. Nobody could imagine that possible, except the Russians. So as you think about that, I want to encourage you, set goals that are worthy of your talents, stretch, bring out the best in yourself, bring out the best in your crew, and bring out the best in your facility. But petty goals, insignificant accomplishments are meaningless. You know, if you, if you try to persuade people that par is really 75, so you look good if you shoot a 74, anybody who knows anything says, well, actually par is 71, so that was nothing great. So set meaningful goals, be the leader when it comes to accomplishing big things, not little things. A few of the things that you just mentioned in that quartet of really, really important, like put it on the board things. If we go back to communication uh, just for a minute, one of the things that, that popped in my head was this, a lot of this is very easy for folks who are extroverts 
and who have just those outgoing personalities. Not everybody in this industry is, of course, an extrovert. Uh, the industry does attract a few introverts, a few quiet folks who would rather just go about their work and maintain the course and do what they have to do and go home. Is there anything that you recommend, anything that you pass along to folks who are a little quieter, who are a little, little more introverted? They can make the, the relationships. They can make the, the important ties you know, to the controller, to, to the accountant, to whoever, to, to the green chairman, but sure. it's just a little tougher for them. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, if, if it's any consolation to you introverts out there, I am, a, I am an extreme introvert. Hmm. Participating in a program like this with Matt today is tough for me. When I sit down to write columns for GCI, that's a safe haven for me because I don't have to project anything other than my own thoughts onto a piece of paper. So that's, I like that. I like that introversion. So if you're like that, you and I are certainly soulmates as it relates to how a golf course superintendent does his or her job. You've got to be able to project yourself, your thinking and your professionalism verbally, as well as in writing. And if you don't have those skills, then those are skills that need to be developed because you can't be the, the hidden professional. You've got to be able to answer questions. You've got to be able to respond in a convincing way. And I think that's a, that's a real key for everyone to keep in mind. As you think about introversion, of course, most of us that are introverts love being out on the golf course all by yourself. You can do what you want to do. Uh, no, no one's bothering you. And most important person to whom you're accountable is yourself. And, and so I, I get that. And, and at the same time, if you're going to be effective as a professional person, pretty much in any field anymore, you have to be able to connect or at least communicate to others. You have to communicate your ideas. You have to communicate your passion, your enthusiasm. And of course, you need to be able to communicate um, the results that you're generating, good, bad, or ugly. I would have never guessed that you were a self-described introvert, Henry. We had a dinner, the golf course industry crew, now almost two years ago at the last GIS, which seems impossible. And you did sit in the corner and you did a lot more listening than talking, but you were basically Magic Johnson out of the corner. You would, you would throw out one thing and it would yield 20 or 30 minutes of conversation. And then invariably it would circle back to you and you would throw out another thing. And it was, it was that way for two and a half or three hours. So I always just thought that you were the kind of person who most of the time would do far more listening than talking because the old two ears, one mouth axiom, but you really are an introvert, huh? I am. And uh, I throw out those uh, magic Johnson shots from the corner because I don't know enough to say a lot. So I just okay. say a little bit and, and it seems to resonate for some people, but, you know, even to the point that you're describing or the, that terrific dinner we had at, at GIS, you know, when you're in a room full of really brilliant people, just being able to put an idea out there and then get out of the way of it, uh, everybody can pile on and you, you know, what I said might, might have provoked conversation, but the really stuff that was worth taking away is what, what everyone else was saying. And I think that's a real key. Well, we've talked a handful of times, at, at least uh, this year and in the last couple of years, would have never guessed that. And so, as always, thank you for this, but thank you even more so for doing something that gets you out of your comfort zone. I appreciate that. And I, I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it as well. It is my pleasure. Before the last question that I have 
on my list. Is there anything else? And, and that list of four, people need to, to go back and jot those down and put those on the board too. Just things that they need to learn or do more often to be more effective on the business side of things. Is there anything else that you think turf pros need to know about balancing business with agronomics, getting more comfortable on the business side? Uh, and again, it goes hand in hand with, with developing leadership traits, but anything we haven't talked about. You know, your interviews are always so broad and in, 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 <laughs> in cause me to really think about the things that you're asking. And, and so, no, I, I haven't prepared additional thoughts. Okay. The, the one, I'm, I'm, back to, I'm back to Winston Churchill again. And I, I was reading just the other day um, a, a, about the Battle of Britain and Churchill's with his air marshal and the Spitfires are engaging the Nazi bombers, and it's a you know it's a fight to the finish on a grand scale. And Churchill, you know, kind of talking shop with his air marshal, said, "What reserves have we?" And the response from his air marshal, doubting, was, "None, sir." And supposedly that's when Churchill uttered the phrase, "Never has so much been owed by so many." too so few. And of course, realizing he'd really turned a phrase, he had someone jot that down, which he later then repeated that phrase to parliament. And I just would observe, if I've taken anything away from this pandemic, it is that we go back to looking at golf course superintendents faced with the worst of circumstances, natural disasters, right and left, limited access, limited or no access to labor, escalating fuel costs, escalating problems, and golf course superintendents have stood tall through all of that. And so my hope, if there's any one thing I would leave this conversation with, my hope is that if I'm a golf course superintendent out there, I can look myself in the mirror and say, I did my duty. I did my part the best I could do it through the worst of times, because I believe these have been some of the worst of times. You have referenced Churchill twice. You have mentioned uh, Seth Godin books. You have mentioned Make Your Bed. What other books, magazines, journals, speeches, YouTube videos, any other, any resources that you turn to on a fairly regular basis, what should folks be reading or watching or really just consuming to become more versed in business and or a better leader, a more effective leader. Um, I I encourage I encourage all of us, including me, to be broader in the content we consume. You know, in this day and time, one of the hardest things every day is to figure out what the news is, because you have so many different sources that want to tell you what their interpretation of the news may be. And you find yourself having to sort through several different suppliers of news to find out what really happened. And I would would say the same thing for for superintendents, and that is find the sources that resonate with you and see that you don't only pick one category of sources. See that you get a wide array of ideas so that it makes you think. Some of them you'll dismiss out of hand and say, well, that's just silly. I I don't buy that at all. But you're still listening. You're still thinking about it. You're still determining, does this have an application in my profession or not? 
And I think that's the real key is sometimes to pick our favorites. As you can tell, I like to listen to things that came from Churchill. As you can tell, people like Admiral McRaven who come from the martial arts inspire me. And at the same time, people need to find resources that help them to be inspired and be able to communicate that what they do has purpose at their facility. And, that, and that's my hope is, is not, not so much to give people my reading list as it is to encourage you to each create your own reading list and then go read. In a conversation filled with great tips and advice, that might be my favorite bit of advice. Build your own reading list. Don't, don't follow what everybody else says. There's, a, there's an anecdote on that, Matt. Uh, the famous historian Stephen Ambrose, who mm -hmm, wrote sure. Citizen Soldier and so many other wonderful stories of, of history. Um, and he was being challenged on, on his attribution of some certain facts, which he later acknowledged. I think I got that wrong. I don't think I footnoted that properly. And at the same time, he was being questioned by a reporter who said, what would you say to the people that think you got this wrong, that you didn't tell the, enough of the story? And his response was, well, I would tell them to go write their own damn book. You know, and the point is, if you want to have an opinion, be responsible for it. If you want people to consider your viewpoint, then articulate that. Uh, but sitting in the cheap seats criticizing other people's efforts is not constructive. Uh, what's constructive is getting busy and doing something about it. And so you know, one of my favorite things about golf course superintendents is there's not many belly acres. They're all going to get in there and do their best and try to exercise what they consider to be the best set of options available to them. And I admire that. Henry Delosier, thank you so much for your time on this episode of More Than Turf. As always, if folks do not read you on a regular basis, build your own reading list, but I would put the game plan column on my reading list every month, even if I didn't read it for work. And everything you do for this industry with GGA partners, with Audubon, it's tremendous. Thank you so much for coming on. And, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Matt, it's my pleasure. Thanks for including me.